Our reading this morning is Psalm 79, verses 1 through 9. And I'd like to say a few words of introduction about this passage in the Scriptures. It's a, it's a psalm, clearly, but it's a lament psalm. There's a few of our psalms that are true complaints about the difficulties of life. And this is one of the more difficult ones, actually. It's, there's some pretty strong language in here. What's wonderful about the scriptures are that God allows lament. He allows his people to cry out in pain. He allows his people to, to complain about their suffering. And um, this particular psalm was written after the destruction of Jerusalem in 586, 587, 586 B.C. The Assyrian Empire had finally gotten tired of Judah and its capital city, Jerusalem, sort of vacillating between different, uh, different political regimes and uh, threatening to become independent. And so the Assyrians did what empires did back then. This is how you build an empire. Is if there's a small part of your empire that is pushing back at you, you um, if you do nothing about it, pretty soon all the other parts of your empire are going to do the same thing because they think they're going to get away with it. So to keep your empire together, you marshal all your forces together and you uh, descend on that one province that's giving you trouble and you thoroughly annihilate it. You make such an example out of it that everybody else in the rest of the empire says, well, we, we better uh, mind our P's and Q's after this. And that's exactly what happened. The Assyrians came and they came against Jerusalem, which was a fortified city, but they came against it with such overwhelming force that they were finally able to defeat it. And um, we find then that the lament was written by uh, somebody in Jerusalem in the aftermath of this siege of the city where the city was destroyed. And some of the lament is that there were people in the city who were killed and their families didn't have time to go bury their bodies. And in the ancient Near East, this was a terrible thing. To have a family member whose body was laying on the ground and unburied was just a, a, a terrible humiliation. It was a terrible shame. It was a terrible... Um, it, just let, it was just a terrible thing to happen. And, and we're the same way in some ways. I and mean, we, we also bury our dead. But, but for them, it was to have an unburied body in, in your own family was a terrible thing. And the problem was that they were either defending the city and they didn't have time to bury their dead, or the city fell and they were not given permission by their captors to go and bury their dead, which is just decency. But the whole point of this invasion was to make things as terrible as possible for them, and so their bodies were left unburied, um, and they were made an example of. And anybody uh, who didn't die, who looked like they could sort of piece together a government and keep this place going after this uh, destruction, they were all rounded up and they were marched off into exile, where they stayed for seventy years. And a whole bunch of them died along the way too. I mean, if, if you and I had to get up from right now and start walking five hundred miles somewhere, not all of us would arrive there alive reality, right? Exposure, cold, um, you know, it, it, was a, it was a very difficult time. One other thing I want to say about this lament, and laments in general, is that this is Scripture. 
But it's Scripture in a slightly different sense than we think of Scripture. Normally we think of the Scripture as God's voice and God's word. This is a word of somebody crying out to God, and God hears it. God permits it to be said. There are some things in here that are not actually things that God would say. There are things about taking vengeance and, and um, being totally hopeless. And these are not really the words of God, but these are words that God allows his people to speak out of the depth of their despair and brokenness. And so in that sense, it's Scripture, and it's Scripture because God hears it and he cares about it. So with that introduction, I'd like to read this, uh, this disturbing Psalm 79 that also has a word of hope in it. Psalm 79. O God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have reduced Jerusalem to rubble. They have given the dead bodies of your servants as food to the birds of the air, the flesh of your saints to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there is no one to bury the dead. We are objects of reproach to our neighbors, of scorn and derision to those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? How long will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not acknowledge you, on the kingdoms that do not call on your name, for they have devoured Jacob and destroyed his homeland. Do not hold against us the sins of the fathers. May your mercy come quickly to meet us, for we are in desperate need. Help us, O God our Savior, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask that you would add your blessing to it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to imagine for a second that you're at a football game. Who doesn't love football? Maybe some of you don't love football? All right, good. No, that's true. Remember we were talking about having a conversation. Imagine that you're at a football game, but you don't really want to be there. Okay, that's it. And um, something happens in the football game, which is that uh, your team is losing, all right? And uh, all of a sudden, and the other team is driving down the field, and their quarterback throws an interception, and somebody from your team catches it and runs it back for a touchdown, and now the game is in your favor. Doesn't that feel great, right? And not only that, but you take that opportunity in your bleachers to turn to the opposing team's fans, and what do you do? It's called taunting, and it's really poor sportsmanship, right? But it's when you're down and you're out and you really want to win, and you get this sudden turn in the game, and your fortunes are reversed, and you really don't like those other people anyways, like maybe they went to Cal or someplace like that. Uh, ben, ben Gribstad. Who else went to Cal? Ben Grebstad went to Cal. Anyone else? Okay, good. We're safe. All right. Um, that's called taunting. That word shows up here in our, 
in our lesson today in verse 4. In uh, verse 4, it says, We are objects of reproach to our neighbors, of scorn, but that word could be translated as taunting. All of Jerusalem's neighbors were tired of, they were tired of them. They're causing trouble in the empire. Um, they were enemies. And when Jerusalem was destroyed, all the other nations around them were like, Oh, yeah, you got it. You got what you, you, got what you deserved. And the people in Jerusalem are feeling that. They're feeling, not only have they been destroyed, but they're feeling the humiliation and the shame. There's unburied bodies. The unburied bodies are being devoured by birds and by animals. And there's blood everywhere. And their neighbors are jeering at them and taunting at them and making fun of them. And so they write this lament, this lament about where they are. This is real. This is the kind of scripture that you have to be in a sort of a certain mood to find this to be an edifying scripture. But if you're honest with yourself, you realize that there's moments in life where this could describe how you're feeling, couldn't it? There's moments in life where you can feel like, oh, everything I had has been destroyed and people are making fun of me. And I'm not able to take care of the things that I need to take care of. The person who's writing this psalm then, he does something that is actually pretty well known in the Bible. He's asking God to come back to his side. And he's making an appeal to God's honor. The honor of God's name. We see that explicitly in verse 9. He says, uh, help us for the glory of your name, for your name's sake. Um, But he also says, you know, Look, God, in verse 1, the nations have invaded your inheritance. That's this, this land that you've given us as an inheritance. They've defied, defiled, they've shamed your holy temple, this place where your presence abides. They've taken your city, Jerusalem, and they've reduced it to rubble. And then all your chosen people, they've been killing and, and hurting. This appeal to God's honor happens elsewhere in the Bible. We see that with Moses in the book of Exodus. At one point, God gets so angry at his own people because of their complaining that he tells Moses, he says, I'm going to wipe them all out and I'm going to start my nation over with you. That's what he says to Moses. And then this really beautiful passage where Moses is actually able to change God's mind about something. Moses says, don't do it. Because people, the rest of the world will see that and your reputation will suffer, God. Don't do it. Don't. People will say you brought them all out here into the desert just to kill them. And your reputation will suffer. And God changes his mind. Whether it's because he cares about his reputation or because this was a teachable moment for Moses. That's another question. But there's this sense up until this point in the Bible that God cares so much about his honor and his reputation and the honor and the reputation of his his own people and of his city, Jerusalem, and especially his temple where he himself dwells. His presence is there. This is the point in history where that changes. It's interesting. This is the point in history where that changes. It's not that God doesn't care about his honor or the the honor of his name anymore. It's that he, though he still cares about those things, he cares about something else more. 
He cares about the redemption of his people so much that he even allows his own name to be dishonored so that in the future he can redeem them. I'm going to unpack that a little bit. God had been trying all along to keep his people on the straight and narrows to stop worshiping idols, and they'd gone back and forth with good kings and bad kings. And the the northern kingdom had been punished, and they'd been taken away uh, over 100 years before this. And finally, God changed the way he was going to make this happen. And it's not because the law wasn't working. The, the, The law was bad. The Apostle Paul tells us this. The law itself wasn't bad. It's just these people weren't able to keep it. They weren't able to keep their end of the covenant that they had made with God. And God finally decided that he was going to take away his hand of protection from them. We read in the book of Ezekiel that at one point, God's presence actually departed from the temple. It actually just got up and left one day. And with that departure, the departure of his protection of his people. And so the invaders came and they destroyed it. And they're saying to God, don't you care about your name? Don't you care about your reputation? Why don't you defend your own honor, God? And, and, and really what they want, though, is they want themselves to be defended. They want their own glory back. God leaves for a reason. This is something that's a big change in the Bible. God allows some of his people to die. God allows his nation, his chosen nation, to be eradicated from the face of the earth. He allows to die something that he had put a great deal of hope in so that it could be reborn again at a later time. We know that the people went away for 70 years into into Babylon, and they were in exile there. It turns out that that time was actually a very creative time for them. That's when they actually wrote a lot of these things down. That's when a lot of these psalms were composed. That's when they formed some communities that still exist today, the way they organized their life around, uh, around their faith. So it was actually a very good time for them to be away. It was a way more than just of getting their attention, but of recentering them on God in ways that would have never happened if, unless they had to lose everything that they had and, and see the death of their own nation. Um, now, this, isn't, this is God in a different way than we normally think of him. And this is sometimes a God that's difficult for Christians to embrace, a God who allows things to die so that they can come back to life, a God who doesn't need to defend his honor at every turn. Uh, Christians in our present time, we're kind of like this too, and we're really influenced by our culture. I want to just give a few examples. Um, Our culture, and and I'm talking about North American culture right now in the 21st century, we're a culture that really likes to win. We're a culture that really likes to succeed. We're also a culture that really doesn't know what to do with death. We don't really know how to handle it. We found a lot of ways of putting it over here until the the very last moment. We keep putting off facing it until we actually have to face it. There was a time about 150 years ago in this country where it was very common for even a young child to have seen the the dead body of a family member. Grandma, grandpa, great-grandma, great-grandpa would die at home. Their body would lay there for a while. People would come and pay their respects. We don't do that anymore. It's just different now. 
when somebody is about to die, they don't stay at home. Generally, they go somewhere else. Uh, and you can be somebody my age in their mid-40s and never have actually seen a dead body in all your life. Maybe you've never even seen someone actually die in front of you. And we've, we've isolated ourselves from it so much that we never really see it until we actually have to face it. And it's the same way with failure. We don't really want to acknowledge failure or lack of success. And we have some really interesting ways of, of doing that, I guess. Like in some schools, nobody ever comes in last. Everybody gets, so there's 50 kids and they all got a blue ribbon for coming in first. And it doesn't really matter what order they ended the race in. We don't really know how to deal with failure. We don't really know how to deal when we, when we don't succeed. And Jesus encountered this himself, too. We, we want God to be this God of glory. We want God to win. We want God to, de- to vanquish our enemies. We wonder what happens when our enemies are doing well. We wonder what's going on. Why is that happening? Jesus at one point told, right after Peter had acknowledged that he was the Lord, that he was the Messiah, he told his disciples that he was going to go up to Jerusalem to die. And Peter rebuked him. Peter said, what are you talking about? That's not the path to glory. You don't die to get into glory. You're supposed to go to Jerusalem and wipe out all our enemies. But that's when Jesus rebuked Peter. He said, no, this is the way it has to go. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, and a Samaritan town rejected him and his message. And James and John came up to him and said, Lord, do you want us to rain down, call down fire from heaven to destroy this town? Really dumb thing to say, right? And Jesus, Jesus rebuked them. He said, this is, not how I, this is not how I do things. I'm not here to bring glory in the way that you think about it. Uh, even the devil tempted Jesus into glory, to give him everything in the world or to ask God to bring down uh, angels to help him if he jumped off the top of the temple. Jesus didn't come that way. God allowed his name to be dishonored when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Assyrians. He allowed it to happen. He knew at the other end something else was going to come out of it. And there was another time when God allowed his name to be dishonored, and that was when Jesus went to the cross. Because when he went up there on the cross, it was really the king of the universe himself who allowed himself to be completely humiliated. And he was taunted. Jesus was taunted on the way to Christ to the cross and while he was hanging on the cross and by the sign that hung above him on the cross. Why would God allow Jerusalem to fall? Why would God allow his son to die on the cross in a humiliating way? Why would he allow the scorn and the derision to come Jesus' way? It's the same answer. Jesus had to go through death. He had to go through it to give the world hope that death wasn't the last answer to everything. This is what John, uh, Jesus told his disciples when he was with them at the Last Supper. This is John chapter 12. He told them this, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world 
will keep it for eternal life. Jesus had to go to the cross, and he had to die. And in his resurrection then, he put to death the power of death and offered us the hope of new life. Do we need to fear death? Do we need to avoid death? Thinking about it. Do we need to put it over here and not touch it until we absolutely have to? It turns out that as Christians, the answer to that is no. In fact, as Christians, we're called to embrace death. That might sound a little frightening to us. I'm not sure if you were to ask me, would you like to embrace death? (laughs) I'm not sure I would go, yes, me! I would love to embrace death. But this is actually what we're called to. To run headlong into it because we know on the other side of it is the hope of new life. Jesus had to run towards death and go under death and come out the other side to provide us with the hope that life was possible after death. Jesus kept marching towards Jerusalem. There's, all, there's so many ways that Jesus could have avoid, avoided going to the cross. He was marching to Jerusalem for weeks on end, setting his face toward Jerusalem, and he kept telling people, I'm going to Jerusalem, and when I get there, I'm going to die. And a lot of people tried to talk him out of it. And even in that very last week, he had all sorts of opportunities to actually leave town again, Even when he was arrested and he was in front of Pilate, there were several things that he could have said, even at the last moment, to say, yeah, I, no, I'm I'm really not the guy you're looking for. You know, it just, this was just a big misunderstanding, you know. He didn't do that. Jesus didn't do that. He resolutely kept on marching to the cross. He ran straight for it. And he calls us to do the same. The Apostle Paul writes this in Romans 6. And every time I see this, I'm amazed by it. The Apostle Paul writes this, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. I'm going to tell you a secret, which isn't a really big secret, is that when you became a Christian, when you became a follower of Jesus Christ, you died. You died. Now, not physically. We know that. You're still here. You're breathing. But you died to yourself. Your old nature was put on the cross and crucified with Christ. It was buried, and then it was raised again to newness of life, and you're a new creation now as a result of becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. And what animates you now is the Holy Spirit, and it gives you new orders and new direction. We really do die to ourselves when we become a Christian. We die to our own projects, all the things that we thought we wanted to do that we thought were important suddenly are becoming a little less important. We die to our own sense of entitlement. We die 
to our success or this feeling that we need to win all the time. We die to thinking that we can earn our own salvation because we realize when we die that we can't. All we can do is die. You, when you become a believer, you die to yourself. You get buried with Jesus in your baptism and you get raised again to new life. That's great news. But death is still out there on the horizon, isn't it? It's still in the picture. We don't know what's going to happen. We, we just did have a memorial service for Roy. It was a witness to the resurrection. But still, we were marking the life of somebody who had passed away. Some of you know that I buried my father 23 years ago. He was 52 years old when he died of cancer. My mother is getting older. And actually, the day of, of Roy's memorial service, an hour before it started, I got a phone call from my mother that she was in the emergency room with heart palpitations. But she was just waiting for tests. She turned out she was okay. I called her when the memorial service was over, and she was already home. So that was all right. And I don't know if you're like this, but do you, when you get a phone call from a number that you don't recognize, do you kind of wonder, oh, is this bad news about some family member? Or if you get a phone call really late at night and you wonder, is there an emergency? Um, I think about the risks in this life. I worry about my children when I can't see them, when they're at school or they're somewhere else or when my family is away from me. Um, it's just life, isn't it? There's nothing I can do to change that. There's nothing I can do to make my mother's health better. I know that she's just going to get older. I know that I send my children into this world and my wife to go about on the roads and, and that the world is full of risk. And there's something I can't change about that. I, I have to keep living. But there's a part of me that's nervous about it. Then that part of it, I, I can't change that I'm nervous about it. I just have to live in it. And you know what? There's been setbacks in life. Maybe you're this way too. Setbacks that have been so severe that I could have written this psalm, Maybe. Not about Jerusalem, but about some terrible things that have happened that feel like an unburied body, that feel like I've been a reproach to my neighbors. That lament is real, but I have hope. We have hope. We can't run away from these things. We have to run into them. We have to run right towards them. Because we know in the end that Jesus did too. He ran right at it. He ran headlong into death. When you're a follower of Jesus, your life and your death are bound up completely with his. And whenever we lament, God listens. He listens to us. He hears it. We can complain. We can endure the taunts because God is with us. And we have hope. Because the God who did not count his own humiliation too high a cost died for us on the cross so that we could have hope even in trouble. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your son Jesus embraced death so that we could live. Amen.